Hello, and welcome to the History of Rock and Roll, Episode 3, I Don't Sound Like Nobody. Last time, we touched on the rise of indie labels, which played a crucial role in the popularization of rhythm and blues, by finding and recording the artists that were pioneering the genre, but were ignored by the larger labels, like Decca, Columbia, and RCA, who scoffed at these new sounds. We talked about doo-wop and the more raucous rhythm and blues, and the eventual categorization of the latter as rock and roll, a term popularized but not invented by Alan Freed, the Moondog, who at this point in the story was doing quite well for himself as the man who brought the forbidden fruit of rock and roll to many eager teenage ears across America. These same teenage ears were what was making rock and roll a profitable enough enterprise to be entrenching itself in the American public consciousness and economy. Chuck Berry had opened the gates with Maybelline, and now rock and roll was free to invade the pop charts. We ended with Sam Phillips, the small-time record label owner in Memphis, Tennessee, who was looking for a white guy who sang like a black guy to help his studio Sun Records get in on the action his colleagues were enjoying. Sam knew what he was doing. Black music was clearly what people wanted to hear, and what Sam liked to listen to as well. But also, white people were what people wanted to hear. And so he decided the solution to maximum profits must be a white person who delivered black-sounding music, someone that anyone could enjoy, no matter what race or prejudice. Little did he know, the man who fit this description was living right there in Memphis, and could often be found strolling around nearby Beale Street, the center of blues music in Memphis. Elvis Presley was born in Tulipo, Mississippi, and was raised in a church-going family who attended a Pentecostal church, a Protestant movement known for their encouragement and practice of musical expression, which often surfaced in passionately thrilling gospel performances. These Sundays stuck with Elvis as he grew up, being one of the many country boys to regularly tune in to the local hillbilly stations. As a teenager, his family had moved to Memphis, where Elvis was often ridiculed for his music taste. He loved the hillbilly greats like Ernest Tubb, Jimmy Rogers, and Bob Wills, but he also loved black music, especially black gospel singer Sister Rosetta Tharp, who similarly was raised in a Pentecostal church and likely brought back some powerful memories for young Elvis. Sister Rosetta deserves far more recognition than she gets. She was one of the first commercially successful gospel singers, having represented the spiritual side of John Hammond's From Spirituals to Swing, and was also an established guitarist, a black female singer-guitarist, totally unheard of. Elvis adored Sister Rosetta, and had begun listening to local black R&B stations in addition to his hillbilly roots, walking both sides of the tracks. He had started singing and playing guitar himself, and by the time he finished high school, he had made up his mind. He was going to be a star. As young stars do, Elvis walked over to the nearest record label to see if he could get recorded. He walked right over to Media Records, owned by Lester Bahari. Mr. Bahari was put off by Elvis's long hair and nervous demeanor and told him, I think Sam Phillips can do a better job for you than I can. Why don't you go see Sam? And so Elvis went to see Sam at his then-called Memphis Recording Service, 
in August 1953. As the story goes, when Sam's receptionist asked him what kind of singer he was, he either slyly or more likely modestly responded, I don't sound like nobody. He had made his first acetate recording that night, but it hadn't gotten anywhere. Elvis and Sam met a couple times over the next year, but were unable to figure out what was going to work for them. They both could feel the potential, but were unable to translate it into something real. Sam had gotten two local musicians to back Elvis, guitarist Scotty Moore and upright bass player Bill Black, and yet after months the trio were unable to make a record. Frustrations were high on the night of July 5th, 1954, and at the end of another fruitless session, perhaps out of sheer angst, Elvis suddenly jumped into a speedy, energized version of That's Alright Mama, a black blues number from the 40s. Sam came running in, stopped Elvis and the session musicians right there, and told him to do it again, this time on tape. Before the song was even released, it was a hit. Sam had given a copy to a local DJ, and not two days had passed before that DJ was overwhelmed with calls inquiring as to who possibly could have been the singer behind this song. Fast forward two weeks, and Sun Records officially releases That's Alright, with Blue Moon of Kentucky on the B-side. Elvis was signed to a two-year contract right then and there. Sam was beginning to believe he was the man he was searching for. And it wouldn't be long till he was certain. Later that July, Elvis, Scotty, and Bill performed live for the first time, and the way Elvis danced, well, I'm sure you've seen it. But no one at this time had, and apparently the women in the audience could do nothing but scream. It's entirely possible that Elvis shook his legs purely out of nervousness. He was actually a shy performer. But he caught on quick and made the most of it. The performance had not gone entirely unnoticed by other musicians in the area. Country star Hank Snow had seen Elvis and knew he was something special, and relayed the information to his manager, Tom Hanks. Oh, sorry, Colonel Tom Parker. The villain and for some reason narrator of the Elvis biopic, which I'd be shocked if you hadn't seen, was very much a villain in real life as well. Or at least that's what I've gathered, although there is an argument to be made for his semi-decency. But the colonel was certainly a smart businessman, and it wasn't long before he slipped his way into Elvis's inner circle as a special advisor, a made-up job that very seriously came with the power to quote, negotiate and assist in any way possible the build-up of Elvis Presley as an artist. The colonel had been in the showbiz scene for a while, and he knew a star when he saw one. He also knew how to make money. Now, we'll touch on this further in the next episode, but the way things worked out was that Sun Records actually needed to get rid of Elvis as soon as possible. In short, he was simply becoming too popular too fast, and the small-time resources of Sun Records was unable to keep up with the demand. Sam's prodigy was running his label into bankruptcy. And so Sam asked the colonel to do something totally absurd. He said, I want you to get a big label to pay $40,000 to buy Elvis from us. Nearly $500,000 today. Now, I can't understate how absurd this sum of money was at the time, especially since Elvis was really only a local sensation. But somehow, the colonel was successful, 
and on November 21st, 1955, RCA paid 40000 for Elvis Presley. It would be a win for everyone, perhaps the Colonel most of all, who had convinced Elvis's previous manager, Bob Neal, to renounce his right to renew his contract in exchange for a larger cut of the buyout, so the Colonel could step in. He was now in sole control of his boy. RCA's massive deal to acquire Elvis sent shockwaves through the industry. In many ways, it marked a major shift from the way things used to be to the way things were going to be. For one, it signaled to the music scene at large that as big a label as RCA was willing to heavily invest in a rock and roller, and furthermore, that this rock and roller could be as big a pop star as Perry Como or Frank Sinatra. Essentially, they were now backing the rock and roll horse. Oh, how times have changed. Another major effect of the deal was demonstrating to young country performers with an interest in R&B, those who had feet on both sides of the tracks like Elvis, that their voices could be heard too. People want this stuff. And so, after a long courtship, R&B and country finally got together under the name Rockabilly. The release of Elvis's first single under RCA, Heartbreak Hotel, had essentially split the country music scene into two pieces. You had regular country, which was currently being championed by the Hanks, Hank Snow and Hank Williams, and now you had Rockabilly, you had Elvis. So if pop songs were on the pop chart, R&B songs on the R&B chart, and country on the country chart, then what would Rockabilly be considered? Everything, I guess. Rockabilly was simply too powerful to stay in its own commercial. Three weeks before Elvis had even released Heartbreak Hotel, singer-guitarist Carl Perkins released Blue Suede Shoes, which confused the heck out of everyone when it made all three charts at the same time. What? But how? Even Billboard was confused, dubbing this new sound, quote, one big mongrel music category. And before anyone even had a chance to scratch their heads, you had Heartbreak Hotel doing the same thing. Heartbreak Hotel hit number one on both the pop and country charts, and hit number five on the R&B. Heartbreak Hotel was cut at RCA in Nashville on January 10th, 1956, and has an interesting backstory that I'd like to share. It was written by a guitarist and a female high school teacher who had been inspired by a section of the local newspaper. It was the story of a man who jumped from a hotel window, leaving a suicide note with one line, I walk a lonely street. Elvis loved it and agreed to make it his first single under RCA in exchange for one-third of the royalties, his name on the songwriting credit. And to be fair, while he was not a songwriter himself, Elvis had such a way of interpreting songs in the studio that the version on tape was actually unrecognizable to its composers. Heartbreak Hotel would have particular influence on many young British boys, among them John Lennon, George Harrison, Keith Richards, and Robert Plant. To quote John, When I first heard Heartbreak Hotel, I could hardly make out what was being said. We'd never heard American voices singing like that. They'd always sung like Sinatra, or enunciated very well, and suddenly there was this hillbilly hiccuping on tape echo 
and the bluesy background going on, and we didn't know what the hell Presley was singing about. To us, it just sounded like a noise that was great. The same session produced a cover of Ray Charles's I Got a Woman, a great song with shamefully outdated lyrics, reworked by Charles from an old gospel number to become one of the biggest hits of 1955. Elvis was having to get used to RCA's more regimented way of recording, and was told he had to stay perfectly still while singing to ensure the sound was captured. When he was simply unable to do this, the RCA techs reworked the studio to capture his voice from anywhere. Times were changing, and just like R&B before it, Rockabilly was showing that country music, if it could still be called that, had a place on the pop charts. Artists like Carl Perkins, Buddy Knox, Patsy Cline, and Sonny James were blurring all the lines, showing that kids didn't care about definitions like adults did. They just liked and bought whatever sounded good. Fantastic news for young musicians who didn't quite fit into the old boxes. Two young friends who weren't exactly box fitters themselves were a pair from Lubbock, Texas, Bob Montgomery and Buddy Holly, professionally Buddy and Bob. These two hooligans loved country, they were in Texas after all, and grew up listening to the Opry, eventually taking their style from the close harmonies of the country brother trope, the likes of the Leuven brothers. But Buddy, he also really liked to stay up late to hear the black R&B stations that could only be heard after local transmissions had ceased. While in previous eras these two boys from a small town in the middle of literally nowhere would never have been discovered, Buddy and Bob found themselves on Rock and Roll's touring circuit. They not only had the chance to meet Elvis when he came to town for a show, but also found themselves opening for Hank Snow and Bill Haley. This got them noticed by a DECA talent scout, who was quick to signal out Buddy as the star of the two. Before long, Buddy Holly was sent a contract that not only left out the letter E from his last name, forever cementing it in the annals of history, but also left out his bestie Bob. Bob was allowed to play on the records, they said, but he was not to be a singer or frontman. Bob, being very kind, encouraged his friend to take his lucky break and go for it. And he did. With the support of his parents, I'll mention, the Buddy Holly biopic falsely depicts Buddy's parents as unsupportive. And so Buddy Holly left his small town for the big city, Nashville, where he recorded his first few songs for Decca that sounded very much like rockabilly and yet very different from what Elvis and Carl were doing. Meanwhile, the industry was still struggling to grasp the idea of a song not staying in its own well-defined area. Country artists were completely disregarding convention by singing R&B, and even R&B artists were audaciously drawing on country. Chuck Berry had just released 30 Days, a direct tribute to Hank Williams. Yes, Hank the country legend, which made number two on the R&B charts. What's next? Pigs falling from the sky? And what about Sam Phillips, the man who had sold Elvis? What was he thinking seeing his prized possession topping the charts without him? Well, according to the man himself, he never regretted it. Selling Elvis had not only saved his company and ensured that it would have a future in music, and boy did it ever, but it also meant that Sun was able to keep up with the demand for its newest hit single. Blue Suede Shoes, the rockabilly sensation that had preceded Heartbreak Hotel by three weeks, was pressed by none other 
than Sun Records. That's right. Sam wasted no time in finding another white boy who sang like a black boy. Carl Perkins fit the bill. Carl was another country boy who grew up listening to the Opry and yet lent his ear to black music as well. Carl had heard Elvis's Blue Moon of Kentucky on the radio one day and decided he was to come to Memphis and show Sam Phillips the similar music he had been working on. Unlike Elvis, Carl Perkins wrote his own music. Before long, his blue suede shoes had put him and Sam on the map, a number two hit on all three charts, beaten only by Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel. Tragically, Carl's success was short-lived. On March 21, 1956, on the way to New York City for a nationally broadcast appearance on the Perry Como show, Carl's car slid into a ditch. He fractured three vertebrae in his neck, broke his collarbone, and suffered a severe concussion, confining him to the hospital for six months. Carl had to be content with watching Elvis perform Blue Suede Shoes live on television. Elvis, who had logically recorded his own version of Carl's hit, very kindly declined to release it as a single out of respect for his colleague, who he admired and respected. But, to be fair, he was already selling $75,000 worth of records every single day. While Carl Perkins would eventually recover and make some more rockabilly classics that would do well on the country charts, he sadly never again reached mainstream pop success. Sam, on the other hand, was prepared. He had taken out insurance in the form of Johnny Cash, a future mainstay on the country and pop charts, who currently had his own rockabilly hit in Folsom Prison Blues. The old-timers were really starting to get pissed off with this stuff. They had had it, and the industry actually asked Billboard to stop listing R&B-influenced songs in the country charts. Keep it pure. But Billboard would do no such thing. Times were changing. This was what people wanted. In fact, what every label wanted most was their own Elvis. White boys singing black music. This was the key to success. And when Buddy's debut, Love Me, came out, Billboard was quick to suggest that he may just be the next Elvis in line after Carl and the King himself. And there were plenty of other Elvises out there too. Plenty of artists that either sang like black artists or actually were black. You had Little Richard in New Orleans, finally breaking through on the specialty label after being dropped by RCA. He was displaying the full power of rock and roll screaming, with his Tutti Fruity and Long Tall Sally making number 18 and number 6 on the pop charts respectively. Chuck Berry was kicking around as well, writing songs like Roll Over Beethoven that would have him later cited by legendary rock critic Robert Criscow as being the one to actually have invented rock and roll. Sun Records had yet another horse in the race with Roy Orbison, and Capitol had entered the running with Gene Vincent, who had a rockabilly hit with Bababalula, peaking at number 7 on the pop charts. And the fat man was going strong as ever. Fats Domino had two of the top five R&B hits of the year in Blueberry Hill and I'm in Love Again. These artists were showing that rock and roll could be anything. It could be gospel, it could be country, it could be anything you wanted it to be. This idea had a major influence over in Britain, who would eventually return the favor by means of taking over the continent. 
but it was not all roses and sunshine. The old shticklers of the industry were far from giving up the fight, and each time Elvis gyrated his hips, it made their nostrils flare wider. Elvis and his rock and roll army had failed to impress network television, which was an important intermediary between the artists and the public, and was notably white, corporate, and middle class. Everything rock and roll wasn't. When Elvis made his television debut in January 1956, on the CBS TV variety program Stage Show, he felt the brunt of this culture clash. The seats were half empty, and the applause was pathetic, having to be turned up in post. And soon, he had an even bigger hurdle to jump. For American families at this time, the TV event of the week was on CBS every Sunday night, The Ed Sullivan Show. Before even having a chance to make an impression, Mr. Ed Sullivan openly expressed his disdain for Elvis, declaring that he was, quote, unfit for family viewing, and said the king would never be allowed on his show. One of Ed's main competitors, Steve Allen, quickly seized this missed opportunity and offered Elvis 50000 for three appearances on his own show. Now, it wasn't just that Ed was a stuck-up old white guy, which he probably was. He had been primed to hate Elvis, having had a bad run-in with a rock and roller before, one by the name of Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley had been discovered up in Chicago by the Chess Brothers, and recently had a number one R&B hit with his self-penned, self-titled song, Bo Diddley, which became particularly renowned for its rhythm, known as, you guessed it, the Bo Diddley beat. He had become popular enough for Ed to invite him on the show, but Ed wasn't keen to hear Bo Diddley the song, rather he wanted Bo Diddley the artist to sing a more family-friendly number, perhaps a current country hit called Sixteen Tons. When Bo said he didn't know the song, Ed had someone write out the lyrics on cards for him. Lights on, cameras rolling, out comes Bo Diddley and, wait, what the hell? After the show, he said, man, maybe that was Sixteen Tons on those cards, but all I saw was Bo Diddley. Ed nearly busted a vein in his forehead and banned Bo Diddley for life. Banning, usually used on songs rather than artists, was a measure that was becoming common practice among both TV networks and radio stations who united in their mission to save Americans from profanity. NBC notoriously had the most conservative network censor, the guy who would screen all songs for airplay. But even when he was presented with Little Richard's Long Tall Sally, he handed it to the producer after several listens, saying, quote, How can I restrict it when I can't even understand it? Similarly, over in Cincinnati, Sid Nathan at King Records heard a record in the other room that he quickly declared the worst record he had ever heard, until his employee told him it was actually their fastest-selling record of the year. This was James Brown's Please, Please, Please. And as much as the old farts couldn't stand songs like Little Richard's Ready Teddy or Rip It Up, which were simply too fast for their frail minds, it must have really frustrated rock detractors that many rock and rollers were actually getting hits with covers of old standards, songs that these same detractors held the copyrights to. When Fats Domino brought his blasphemous version of Blueberry Hill to the top, cash was being deposited into their pockets. What could they do about it? 
So rather than eliminate rock and roll entirely, an increasingly daunting task, they set out to change it, make it clean, family appropriate, and hopefully still profitable. Our new sedate version of R&B will keep audiences under control, stated Associated Booking, an agency who had just organized a tour of the most family-friendly R&B artists they could find, the Penguins being the most popular among them. And then they released their secret weapon. Pat Boone, the messiah sent out with explicit instructions to sedate rock and roll, with what Ed Ward describes as his, quote, uncanny ability to make even the most exciting material seem bland. Just try listening to his version of Tutti Frutti. The kids couldn't be bothered, but parents loved him. This is what they wanted their children listening to. And if pouring a bucket of cold water on rock and roll didn't work, you could always fight fire with fire. In Birmingham, Alabama, after failing to ban rock and roll from their city, a group of white supremacists dragged Nat King Cole off the stage and beat him to a pulp. He wasn't a rock and roller, but he was black, and that was good enough for them. Meanwhile, Alan Freed continued to champion the rock and roll cause, being devoted as ever to fighting the good fight likely in part to the tens of thousands of dollars he was making from copyright royalties, salary, and the gigantic shows he was always putting together. In less than a year, he had more than a dozen rock and roll songs with his name in the fine print, and had made quite an entrance for himself in New York, with the city's first rock and roll ball in January 55, selling out in advance tickets. Both nights of the show ended with an incredible 30-minute rendition of Shake, Rattle, and Roll, led by Big Joe Turner himself, with Fats Domino, The Moon Glows, and Clyde McFadder and The Drifters all sharing the stage. When the media went after Freed for his role in spreading teenage angst, he famously replied, quote, As long as there are radio stations like WINS in America, and as long as there are people who like me around, we're going to rock and roll until you don't want to rock and roll anymore. And then, when you don't want to rock and roll anymore, I'll give you what you want. And for the moment, rock and roll was still what people wanted, and it was still being given to them. More specifically, Elvis was what people wanted, with his Liber and Stoller penned Hound Dog cover going to number one quite quickly, followed by much merchandising by the Colonel. By the end of 1956, Elvis merchandise made $22 million, and whatever went to Elvis, you bet 25% was going to the Colonel. Colonel Parker had also engineered a multi-film deal to make Elvis into a movie star, and had even talked old Ed into allowing Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show. The Colonel had negotiated 50000 for three shows, half of which would go right into his own pockets, and when the first aired, it was watched by an estimated 50 million Americans, including future legendary drummer Levon Helm. To top things off, Elvis's next single, Love Me Tender, had sold a million copies before anyone had even heard it, a feat never thought possible. I want to close 1956 and today's episode with a little anecdote that I find really cool. On December 4th, having recovered from his injuries, Carl Perkins was in the studio with Sam's newest prodigy, Jerry Lee Lewis, then a piano studio musician recording a new number Perkins had written called Matchbox, soon to be a rockabilly classic. 
When Elvis suddenly dropped by the studio to say hello, Sam quickly sent out for his other wonder boy, Johnny Cash, to complete what would be known as the Million Dollar Quartet. The four legends had an impromptu jam session, which has been released, and there's even a photo to prove it. The image, showing the other three watching as Elvis demonstrates something on piano, almost conveys the attitude they must have had towards their king. Watch him closely, because everything he touches is gold.